welcome all of you to the bridge, uh, especially those of you who are our guests again. We're in a series starting the new year out with a series called Building a Daring Faith. Not just a faith, but a daring faith. A daring faith, a faith that takes risk, a faith that, that has application and that brings us closer in our relationship to God. And if you're new uh, to the bridge or if this is the first time you've come during this series, I want to emphasize once again how important this series is in our walk with Christ, in our relationship with God. Because the theme verse for this series, Hebrews eleven six, 6, reminds us that, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. So for those of us who want to please God with our life, we've got to get this. Because without faith, it's impossible. Scripture tells us that. It gives us two qualifiers. Because it says, because anyone who comes to him must first believe that he exists. That's our doorway to eternal life. That's our doorway to the forgiveness of our sins, that we believe that God exists, but even more that we believe Jesus was his son who died on the cross for our sins. That's why Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart God raised us from the dead, we'll be saved. Saved from eternal separation from God, saved from eternal trial and tribulation. So first we have to believe that Jesus is the only way, that he died on the cross for our sins. Now, most of us have taken that step in our Christian life, so we fall under category number two, which says, and believe that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. This Christian life is a hard thing, isn't it? It's not easy to live the Christian life. It's not easy to to obey the commands of the Bible and live those out day and day. God knows that. But for those of us who will, in faith, do our best to live that kind of life, and to separate ourselves from the desires of this life, he's going to reward us. That's why we do it, in our love for him and in our faith that it's all going to to be worth it one day if we will just go all in for Jesus Christ. Now, we're also reminded in this series, as Jude 1.20 says, that this is something every one of us have to do individually. Jude says, but you, dear friends, build yourselves up in this holy faith. And I say this every week in this series, but it's important because you've got to understand, no one can do this for you. Those who love you most in life cannot do this for you. They cannot allow, help. they cannot cause you to be this kind of person of faith. You've got to do this for yourself. I, as your pastor, can't do it for you. What I can do is what I'm doing. I'm sharing with you from the Bible what the Bible has revealed about becoming people of a daring faith. I teach it to you. You individually have to decide what you're going to do with it. I hope and I pray that you're going to apply it to your life and become a person characterized by daring faith. Now, in week one, we looked at what does faith look like? And we saw six things that faith looked like. It's believing when I don't see it. It's obeying when I don't understand. It's persisting when I don't feel like it. It's giving when I don't have it. It's thanking God before I receive it. And trusting God if I don't receive it. Those are all elements that we can gauge our life by and say, okay, how am I stacking up to those characteristics of faith? Am I believing when I don't see it? Am I obeying when I don't understand it? See, it's a great checklist for us to look and evaluate our daily lives and our walk of faith. Last week, we looked at how God exercises our faith. And we learned that if we really buy into this idea of becoming people characterized by a daring faith, God will see that. He'll see our heart. He'll see our desire, and he'll get involved in it. And what he'll do is he will exercise our faith in all six of those categories. And as we saw last week, he does that through allowing difficulties to come into our life. 
He does that through placing demands on us to see whether we'll be faithful and follow his demands. He does it uh, by delays. He won't give us everything we pray for right now, instantaneously. And he'll do it through dollars and how we use our financial resources. Now today and next week, I want to look at how we fail at faith. What happens, how do we understand when we're not achieving what God wants us to do? When we're kind of going the opposite way of without faith, it's impossible to please God. When we're not pleasing God, how do we fail at this? Today, we're going to look at the most common reason that we fail at faith. Next week, we're going to look at the most consequential way that we fail at faith. In today, learning the most common way, we're going to use a very familiar biblical story, at least to many of you, most of you who have been around the church and studied the Bible. And it's found in the very first manuscript of the New Testament, the book that we call Matthew, who bears the name of the author. If you want to open your Bible, if you have it with you today, to Matthew chapter 14, we're going to pick up with verse 22. Scripture says, Matthew 14, 22, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Now let me set the setting. Jesus has just done that miraculous uh, event called the feeding of the 5,000. How many remember that story? where Jesus had been teaching the people all day, and the disciples came and said, the people are hungry. We need, to, we need to send them away so they can get food. And Jesus said, well, go see what we have. And they came back with a few fish and a few loaves, and Jesus began breaking those, and he fed all 5,000. And those were men that were counted, plus women and children. So it was after that event. And so Jesus says to his disciples, he says, you guys get in the boat and go to the other side. He's talking about the other side of the Sea of Galilee. That's where he's at in his ministry. He says, I'll dismiss the crowds. Can you imagine? There's thousands and thousands of people. He's just performed this, this miracle. The energy, the excitement. He's saying, I've got to handle this. You guys go on ahead, and I'll take care of this. So that's what happens. But then in verse 23, it says, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Now, it'd be real easy for us just to blow by this verse in this passage because it's really not pertaining to what I really want to talk to you about today. But we, we can't blow by this verse because it's such an important lesson. In it. And here's the lesson. That even Jesus, who was God incarnate, we get that, right? Even Jesus had to take time to recharge his batteries. Even Jesus, after this, this amazing mountaintop experience, literally, after this amazing, miraculous event, he had to get away by himself and just kind of, and regroup and pray to the Father. He needed to pray. Can you imagine that? Jesus needed to pray to the Father. How much more do we need to pray to the Father? And see, there's a great life lesson there for every one of us because we live such crazy, hectic lives, don't we? We're running and going and going and going and going and going, and we never stop to, and to spend some time with Jesus and, and, and with the Lord in prayer. And then we wonder why we're, we're so stressed out, and we wonder why we're so anxious, and we wonder why we're so frustrated, and sometimes we wonder why we're so depressed and discouraged. It's because we just keep going, and we don't slow down. So Jesus gives us a great example here. He is our model for everything. And I, I, I'm not going to double tithe you on this one today. This is for free, okay? <laughs> I'm not going to charge you anything extra. But, but make note of that. You've got to take time to recharge your batteries. You can't go 100 miles an hour every day of your life. All right, so Jesus goes up and he prays. And he's spending some time up there. He, the, 
In the meantime, the disciples are rowing to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And it says, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land. I mean, it had been a long time since they left. Look what happened. Beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. The disciples go out on the Sea of Galilee. Now, geographically, the Sea of Galilee is located between two mountain passes. And so when the winds come through that mountain path, it's, it's like a wind tunnel. And it can whip up the Sea of Galilee in an instant. And so undoubtedly, these disciples, when they set out across the sea and they're, they're rowing in, in a boat, probably the, the waves were calm. But they got out there a ways, and all of a sudden, these winds come and whip up the sea, and now they're struggling to get across to the other side. The wind's beating on them. The waves are beating on them. And these are experienced, some of them at least, Peter and his brothers were experienced fishermen. And so they're rowing with all their might to try to get the other side, and this wind is just beating them up. Now, you, you can't appreciate what's happening here. Uh, you you got to understand the power of the sea, the majesty of the sea. I was serving on a guided missile cruiser when I was in the Navy, and we were crossing from Norfolk, Virginia, to the Mediterranean Sea to do a med cruise over there. And while going across, we ran right into a hurricane, and the admiral of the battle group decided to sail through the hurricane instead of around it. And so we got into these storms where there were 30 to 40 foot swells. That means that's how high the waves were. There were like four, three, four story buildings. They were crashing down on the ship and the ship would ride up to one of the, of the waves and just come crashing down the other side and when it would come down, the bow would dig into the water and the whole ship would shudder. And the, the ocean was torquing. This is a modern naval steel ship. The ship was torquing so much that the metal support beams from the deck to the overhead were snapping off. The welds were just snapping like that. You know, I mean, the sailors were coming to me and saying, are we going to be okay? Is it going to be all right? Are we going to make it? I said, sure, she's a good ship. She'll hold. I went to the captain, are we going to make it? <laughs> I mean, everyone was like, we were, we were on edge. We sailed for three days through this, got to the eye of the storm, had one day of peace, and then hit the other side, the dirty side, sailed through the... And I mean, you cannot imagine what it's like to be out in waves like that and being beat by those waves. That's what they're doing. They're getting beat up. They're even fearful that they're going to make it at all. So in this setting, in verse 25, it says, In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, the fourth watch of the night followed Imperial Rome's military watch standards. They would have an evening watch that would go from 6 o'clock to 9, another one from 9 to midnight, another one from midnight to 3 a.m., and then the fourth watch would be from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So this is early in the morning. These guys have been struggling all day. They've been up probably over 24 hours. They're fighting. They're exhausted. They're, they're probably at the end of their strength mentally and emotionally. And so they're rowing and struggling and just trying to get to the other side. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes walking on the water. Now, let me comment. Jesus is the only being who ever commanded nature. He didn't just do little miracles of healing and all that, which is amazing in itself. I mean, how many agree raising the dead is a miracle, right? But he was even able, because he gave that power to, to some of his disciples, to heal and to raise the dead now, Jesus was the only one who could command physics, who could change the laws of physics, who could have dominance over nature itself. And so he's walking on the water. He's walking on the sea, and not a flat seabed. 
He's climbing up the wave, down the wave, up the wave, up the wave, down the wave. I mean, he's in the middle of this ferocious storm walking on the water. He's the only one that could do that because he was God in the flesh of man. The ancient Egyptians had a hieroglyphic symbol that were two feet walking on the water. And that symbol represented the concept of something that was impossible to do. And so Jesus here is doing the impossible. With that in mind, it says in verse 26, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. Can we blame them? This has never happened before. It's not, oh, who's this walking on the water this time? I mean, it's never happened before. And so in this horrible storm, they're already scared. They're already getting beaten. It's early in the morning. They're already exhausted. And now they look out there and they see this, what they believe is an apparition. They, they see this, what they think is a ghost walking out, probably thinking it's the grim reaper coming to collect us. And they're scared to death as Jesus is walking on that water. We would have been scared too. And then Jesus says in verse 27, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. No, so of course immediately all fears left them, right? No, I mean, they're going, what? It's who? Jesus, is that you? So Peter now, who is the head of the disciple band, and I relate so much to him, not just because my name is Peter, but because I'm as impetuous and impulsive sometimes with the Lord as he was. And so Peter, this impetuous character, this disciple, then responds in verse 28, Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. He's asking the outrageous. He said, if it's really you, command me to come out and walk on the water with you. That's what Peter's saying. No one's ever done this before. And now Peter wants to do it with Jesus as a sign that it's really Jesus. Look what Jesus says. He says, okay, come on. Come, Jesus says in verse 29. Now, remember earlier in the series, we discovered that whenever God calls us to act on some act of faith, one of those six things, He's inviting us into the divine supernatural. It's an invitation for us to experience something we could never experience outside of our relationship with Jesus, outside of our relationship with God. So just as it is with Peter right now, when Jesus says come, Jesus is inviting Peter to experience the supernatural, that which a human being cannot experience. Now, Peter, in faith, got out of the boat and started walking on the water. He got out of the boat. Now, I know most of us know the end of the story, and so we think, oh, that Peter, that... But he got out of the boat. Would you have gotten out of the boat? The 11 others didn't get out of the boat. They didn't even ask to get out of the boat. They were staying in the boat. Peter says, if it's you, command me to come out. See, Peter put action to his faith. And that is something that we've got to understand. We cannot go through this series and just understand it intellectually. We cannot go this, through this series and emotionally say, oh God, I want to be a strong person of daring faith. And God, I understand what faith is. And oh God, you know my heart. We've got to put action to our faith. We've got to do something about it. 
In this case, Peter took a life risk in getting out of that boat. He believed that somehow Jesus was going to allow him to stay on top of those waves. Because he put action to his faith, Peter got to do with what no other natural human being has ever done in history, nor will they do again. Peter walked on the water. Not, and again, not just a flat, calm stream. He walked on these tumultuous waves out to Jesus. Can you imagine what the other disciples must have been thinking? Is he out of his mind? What is he doing out there? Peter, get back in the boat. What are you doing out there? He's just walking out to Jesus. But then we know what happens, right? Matthew 14, 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Here Peter demonstrates the first and most common reason that we fail at faith. And what is that? He lost his focus. He lost his focus. Instead of keeping his eyes on Jesus, what, what, what happened? He started to look around him. And he saw these mountainous waves on either side. And it said the wind began to whip on him, blowing that sea spray, that sea spray in his face and on his body, and he's fighting the winds. All of a sudden, he lost his focus, and instead of keeping his eyes on Jesus, instead of enjoying Jesus' invitation into the supernatural, instead of being able to experience something no human being could possibly experience outside of their relationship with Jesus, he began looking at the circumstances around him. And when he began to look at the circumstances around him, instead of focusing on Jesus, he sank and began to flail for his life. Often we fail at faith for the same reason. We lose our focus. We get our eyes off Jesus. Some of us have even gotten out of the boat of our life and started walking on the waters of faith. God has invited us into his supernatural in some way, either some, some mission or some relationship, some financial uh, risk or whatever it is. He's invited us and we do it, we accept the challenge and we're out there and we're doing something we could never have done outside of Jesus. And all of a sudden, what am I doing? What am I doing out here? Am I crazy? Do I really believe that I can be a person of daring faith? Who am I kidding? I can't be a person of daring faith. I can't do that. And see, the circumstances, the demands on our time, the demands on our finances, and the demands on our energy, and the demands on this and that and other. We start looking around. And I'll tell you what, you look around in life, and there's a lot of storms out there, aren't there? And as long as we keep our eyes on the storm, what's going to happen? Bloop. We're going to sink just like Peter did. But here's where we make a mistake. What, what did Peter do? When he sank, he immediately cried out to Jesus. He said, Lord, save me. Instead, we struggle to swim our way back to the boat. 
often we perpetuate our suffering. We prolong our fear and anxiety because we don't put our eyes back on Jesus. We just say, I got to do it, I got to do it. And we just try to swim back to the boat. See, some of us have convinced ourselves that the boat is the safe place, not Jesus. I got to get back to the boat where I'm controlling my own circumstances. I got to get back to the boat where, where, where there are friends who can help me. I got to get back to the boat where there are things that I can manipulate to help me charter this thing called life, see? And we think the boat's the safe place. That's what the other 11 disciples thought. They thought the boat was the safe place. Yet with each stroke of the oar, in reality, what we're doing is we're rowing further and further away from God's protection and God's peace because we're trying to do it on our own. Note to self, I cannot do the supernatural. I can only experience the supernatural through my acts of faith alongside what Jesus calls me to do. That's the difference, see? Write this down. When my storm is raging, there is only one person I can walk on the water with. When my life storm is raging, there's only one person I can walk on the water with. There's nobody else. I don't care who's back in the boat. The ones back in the boat can't help me. It's the one who's already outside the boat walking on the storm. That is the person who has the power to help me. Now look what happens as the story goes on. Don't you know that when Peter got his eyes off Jesus and sank back into the water and started flailing about in these rough seas. Don't you know that Jesus' reaction could have been, there you go again, Peter. There you go again. You are so impulsive. You are so, imp Peter, how many times are you going to fail? Peter, how many times are you going to fall down? Peter, how long is it going to take for you to really trust me? Peter is he, he could have just said, all right, Peter, just swim back to the boat. Past him while he's walking on the water. But here, here, here's what, what happened with Peter. And, and I want you to take great comfort because this is true for you too. When you get your eyes off Jesus and you lose your focus and you start sinking back in life, one of the reasons you try to start swimming back to the boat is you think Jesus has left you. He hasn't. Just like with Peter. What's it say? Immediately. Jesus reached out his hand. And Jesus he shook his head and said, Peter, why did you doubt? You a little faith, why did you doubt? You were doing it. Right now, you might have taken your focus off Jesus. You were walking on the water, but you're not walking on the water anymore. You're not engaged in those six things. And you think that Jesus is so upset with you that he won't help you back to the boat. He's not. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is loving. Jesus is forgiving. Jesus is patient. And Jesus knows that life gets scary. But he's always as close as the mention of his name. Where's your focus right now? Where's your focus? What's your focus on? Is it on all the circumstances of your life? 
Remember, all those circumstances are probably a test of your faith. Believing what you don't see. Obeying what you don't understand. Persisting even though you're tired and you're worn out. You've been rowing a long time. It's early in the morning. What is it? Where's your focus? Paul tells us this. He gives us help in this. In Romans 8, verses 5 and 6, it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the Spirit. In other words, Paul says this. Whether we're walking on the water of faith or we're sinking into the oceans of doubt depends on what we're feeding ourselves with. See, when we get off of Jesus and we start contemplating all of our circumstances and filling our minds with all the negative and all the scary and all the unknown and all that stuff, guess what's going to happen? Bloop. The way to counter that is to instead fill our minds with the things of the Spirit and say, now how do I do that? Well, you got to come back for the final week and I'll teach you that. <laughs> goes on to say, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is, read it with me, life and peace. Say it again. One more time. Wow. What a choice, huh? How many want to choose life? How many want more peace in your life? Here's how you do it. You got to fill your mind with the things of God. You got to keep your eye on Jesus. Regain your focus. Look what it says, Matthew 14, 20, 20, or 32. And when they got back in the boat, the wind ceased. See, when he got back with Jesus, and when Jesus and Peter got back in the boat, that's when the winds settled down because Jesus commanded them to settle down. See, only Jesus knows how to calm the storm, that storm and the storm in your life today. Now, one final consideration in this. Understand this. Your faith and your acts of faith you getting out of the boat and walking on the water, that's bigger than yourself. Look what was the ultimate result of Peter acting on his faith, even though he momentarily fell. Verse 33, and those in the boat worshipped him. Worshipped who? Worshipped Jesus saying, truly, you are the son of God. Do you know that when we get out of the boat, and we exercise faith. People around us that we don't even know are watching what's going on are going to be impacted by that. See, they're going to look at you out there as you have accepted God's invitation into the divine supernatural, and you're doing something that's way out of your comfort zone, way out of your, your natural human abilities, whatever it is. And people are going to look at you and go, where in the world is that coming from? And then they're going to know that it's because of your walk of faith. And they're going to praise and glorify God and say, there is a God. I see it in him. I see it in her. I see it in her reaction. I see it in her faith. I see it in her obedience. And they 
will worship God. And when we, through our faith and acts of faith, bring glory to God, guess what he's motivated to do? To bless us. To reward us. Listen, regain your focus. This morning, as we take the Lord's Supper, and our deacons and ushers are coming forward now, I want us to take the Lord's Supper this morning focusing on faith. First take a cracker and put it in your lap, then take one of the cups of juice and pass the plate on. Hold it until we've all received. If you're a believer, you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. As you receive these elements, I want you to spend some time with Jesus, just you and Jesus, in prayer. I want you to talk about where your focus is right now. And if, as you evaluate your, your life in, through today's message, Peter and his example, if you've lost your focus, I want you to talk to Jesus right now about regaining your focus. What did Peter do? He cried out to Jesus, Lord, save me. And it says, immediately Jesus reached out his hand. You cry out to Jesus right now, immediately he's going to reach out his hand. You got your eyes on the circumstances of your life. You got your eyes on things that are scary and things that are uncertain. Listen, put your eyes back on Jesus. And right now, you have some time with the Lord and say, Jesus, I'm putting my eyes back on you today. Jesus, I'm not going to look at the waves anymore. I'm not going to feel the winds anymore. I'm putting my eyes on you because only you can walk me through this storm. But maybe you're here today and you've never availed yourself of the first characteristic of faith. And that's where Hebrews eleven six 6 says that without faith it's impossible to please God because those who come to him must believe that he exists. Now that goes beyond just believing there is a God. What scripture is really talking about there is believing that Jesus is the son of God. That Jesus died on the cross as an atonement sacrifice for the sins of all humanity. And believe that he is the way and the truth and the life. As Jesus said of himself, that no one comes to the Father except through him. Paul tells us how to do that. In Romans 10, 9, it says, if we will confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. That means that without Jesus, we're hopeless. Without Jesus, we're helpless. That means there's no plan B, there's no plan C, there's only God's plan, and the plan is spelled J-E-S-U-S, Jesus. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Otherwise, believe that he did die on the cross and that he, he did resurrect from the dead. And why is that important? Because Jesus was the only worthy sacrifice for sin. And when Jesus overcame death, hell, and the grave, it gives us assurance that he can overcome our death and overcome our eternal separation, our eternal trial and tribulation. Only he can do that. Have you ever done that? Although Jesus died for every human being, it's not automatic. We have to exercise our faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, By grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You can't earn it. 
You can't buy it. You can't win it. All you can do is receive it as a gift from God. And you do that through a simple prayer that might go like this, God, I want that gift. God, I have no problem right now confessing with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Without Jesus, I am hopeless. Without Jesus, I am helpless. There is no way I can possibly go to heaven without Jesus. And God, I believe in my heart. Search my heart right now, God. I believe with all my heart that Jesus was your son, that he died on the cross and on the third day rose again. And I believe, God, that you have given Jesus alone the authority to forgive me of my sin. And so today, I ask Jesus, Jesus, do that in my life. Forgive me of my sin. God, Jesus, be my sacrifice. Be my atoning sacrifice. Today, I believe on the name of the Son of God for eternal life. Now, Jesus will honor your humility. 1 John 5.13 says, These things are right to you who believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. If you exercise that first degree of faith right now, you can know this without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus has forgiven you of every sin you've ever committed, of every sin you ever will commit, and he guarantees you entrance into heaven one day. Now you start the journey of the second part of that faith, and that is living the life in faith, believing that if we live the kind of life Jesus calls us to live, that not only will we get to heaven, but when we get there, God will lavish eternal rewards on us. That seems pretty easy. And really, except for having to exercise that kind of faith, it is easy. It really doesn't cost us anything. But understand it costs everything of God. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he, what church? Gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. It costs God everything. It costs Jesus his life. But Jesus did it willingly. These elements that we hold in our hands are symbols of his love. They're symbols of the extent that he would go for me and for you and for our eternal security. He first shared it with his disciples on the very night that he was going to be betrayed into the hands of the Jewish chief priest and later to the Romans. During a Passover meal in the upper room, at some point, he took bread and he broke it. And after giving thanks, he passed it to his disciples. He said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. Sometime later in the meal, he also took his cup. And he said to his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Paul later reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do proclaim the Lord's death until we come, until he comes. In other words, we do proclaim our allegiance to Jesus. We do proclaim our faith to Jesus, and that's why we do it. Next week, we're going to talk about why we fail in faith. The second most common reason that we fail but I want you to be here 
because it's also the most consequential result of failing in faith. The final week, which is the following week, I'm going to talk about how you can build your faith. Practical steps you can take every day to put yourself in the position of growing so that your faith can be a daring faith. That's my challenge. Build a daring faith. Be a stronger person of faith than you've ever imagined yourself be. Jesus will help you get there. All you've got to do is get out of the boat. Thank you, God, for everything you've done for us today. Thank you for this message. Thank you for this example through Peter and Jesus. God, help us now to regain our focus if we've lost it because you're as close as the mention of your name. And right now, as we lift our hearts to you, you are stretching out your hands to us and you're pulling us up out of the quagmire of our circumstances. Thank you for that. We love you for that. Bless us this week. We pray in your most holy name, the name of Jesus, amen.